America and other free and open societies face crucial challenges and opportunities abroad that affect security and prosperity at home. This is a series of conversations with guests who bring deep understanding of today's battlegrounds and creative ideas about how to compete, overcome challenges, capitalize on opportunities, and secure a better future. I am H.R. McMaster. This is Battlegrounds. In today's episode of Battlegrounds, our guest is retired Army Lieutenant Colonel Bruce Robinson, son of General Roscoe Robinson Jr., the first African-American four-star general in the United States Army. Bruce is a 1984 graduate of the United States Military Academy at West Point. He is a classmate and friend of our host, H.R. McMaster. After retirement from the U.S. Army in 2006, Lieutenant Colonel Robinson worked as a Homeland Security consultant for a software company in California. He now lives with his family in the Colorado Rockies. After the Allied defeat of the Axis powers, the United States emerged from World War II as one of the world's two superpowers. As America committed to the rebuilding of Europe through the Marshall Plan, Tensions rose with the Soviet Union that would eventually lead to what British Prime Minister Winston Churchill described as the descent of an Iron Curtain that isolated Eastern Europe from the free world. African Americans fought with bravery and honor during World War II and would continue to serve our nation with distinction during the Cold War. Despite their service in the defense of freedom, those who fought abroad and supported war efforts on the home front continued to confront segregation, racism, and inequality of opportunity. In the context of that time in our history, Roscoe Robinson, a freshman at St. Louis University, applied for and was awarded an appointment to West Point's class of 1951. Although he was harassed, hazed, and ostracized, Cadet Robinson maintained the calm demeanor and positive attitude that became the hallmark of his career. Robinson was commissioned as a second lieutenant of infantry and almost immediately deployed to the 7th Infantry Division in Korea, where the United States and her allies were engaged in the defense of South Korea against the North Korean and Chinese Communist forces who, with the backing of the Soviet Union, were trying to force the unification of the peninsula under the red banner of the communist dictatorship. Quickly advanced to company command, First Lieutenant Robinson led his soldiers in fierce combat. He did so with courage and compassion. He would be called to lead off the battlefield. As the army of the early 1950s desegregated and Robinson returned from combat in Korea, he found himself at the forefront of the greatest social change undertaken by the Army since its founding in 1775. Robinson achieved many firsts in the Army, including the plankholder team that formed the Army's Pathfinder School. He earned a reputation for excellence in the Army's elite airborne infantry, serving three times in the 82nd Airborne Division at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, as a captain, as a brigade commander, and finally, as the first African-American to command the All-American Division in 1976. Robinson's other combat commands included the 2nd Battalion, 7th Cavalry Regiment under the 1st Cavalry Division in Vietnam, 
in combat during and after the Tet Offensive. General Robinson also commanded the Army garrison in Okinawa during the Vietnamization of the war. Later, as Lieutenant General, General Robinson commanded the U.S. Army Japan and Ninth Corps. He was then promoted to four-star general and served as the U.S. representative to NATO's military committee in Brussels, Belgium. His humble demeanor and sense of humor, combined with his keen understanding of geopolitical relationships, made him the perfect choice for assignments that required a soldier statesman. During Black History Month, it is appropriate to commemorate the extraordinary service of a selfless patriot who served his nation with great distinction. It is also important to remember that black military service has been inexorably connected to participation in public life and the long, ongoing struggle for equality. Long before the Civil War removed the blight of slavery from our nation, and even longer before the struggle for civil rights secured key victories in the 1960s, African Americans fought for their nation in every war, knowing that the great American experiment in democracy and in our belief in unalienable rights, especially that all of us are created equal, was still a work in progress. The conventional wisdom that black military service, especially in wartime, inspired linear progress toward equality is far from accurate. The U.S. military reflected inequalities in American society, while also playing a vital role in dispelling the myths and eroding the racism that underpinned those inequalities. That is why General Roscoe Robinson is twice a hero. He fought enemies abroad to preserve the freedoms we enjoy, and he fought racism and prejudice through perseverance and his example. Because soldiers like Roscoe Robinson, despite many disappointments across more than two centuries, the American military continues to evolve toward an institution where all Americans, regardless of the color of their skin, can fully belong and enjoy equal treatment. But the military, like every institution in our nation, has more work to do. That work is particularly urgent in the armed forces because the stakes are high and combat power derives from cohesion and teamwork. Nothing is more destructive to teams than racism or any form of prejudice. It is a lesson that applies to nations as well as infantry platoons. General Robinson knew that his nation was imperfect, but he fought to secure the great promise of our republic. In retirement, General Robinson broke more racial barriers, including those that prevented African Americans from serving on corporate boards. West Point recognized him with its Distinguished Graduate Award in 1993, shortly before his death from leukemia in July of that year. Robinson Auditorium at West Point's Thayer Hall is named after him. When the future LTC Bruce Robinson was adopted at the age of four months, he joined a large African-American family. He has only vague childhood memories of the civil rights movement and the racial climate of the 60s and 70s. His parents' philosophy was consistent with Dr. Martin Luther King's hope that children would one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. We talk with Bruce Robinson to honor General Roscoe Robinson, Jr. Learn from his father's example 
and remind ourselves that only when equal opportunity is extended can the military, other institutions, and our society realize our full potential. Bruce, it is great to see you. It seems like just yesterday that we were cadets at West Point in Company E2 as members of the class of 1984, but of course it was not yesterday. We met four decades ago. <laughs> you know, and, and I know we both feel it uh, you know, on occasion, but hey, <laughs> I, I thought I'd point out that's about the same amount of time that had passed between the beginning of World War II and when we took the oath of service as plebes. So, hey, welcome, old friend. You're, you know, you're looking good um, for, for, uh, for what we call, you know, at West Point, an old grad. Uh, th thank you for joining us on Battlegrounds. Well, thank you very much for having me, HR. I'm really, really happy to be here. It's great to see you. Great to see you. Hey, you know, as we discussed, uh, Bruce, I reached out to you because I thought of your father uh, during Black History Month. You know, I, I think that every American should know your father's story. You know, a small part of, of which our viewers just heard in the intro. But I thought I might begin by asking you in general, uh, how, did, you know, how did your father do it? How did General Roscoe Robinson achieve so many firsts as an African-American soldier and officer in an army that was just desegregating in the midst of the, you know, the separate but equal period and so far from overcoming the legacy of slavery? You know, the failure of Reconstruction, the rise of Jim Crow and the myth of the lost cause uh, interpretation of the Civil War. What can, what can you tell us about his personal qualities and your memories of what motivated him and how he overcame obstacles that were thrust in his way? Sure. So I, I think the answer HR has everything to do with his character. So he, he my dad was a consummate optimist. He uh, there was never a problem that couldn't be solved. He. Um, he didn't focus on negative issues. He, uh, you know, not with us kids, not as far as I know, with his military commu uh, uh, community. Uh, the negative things were things that were in the past. You learn from them, you keep looking forward, you get on with life. He, he you know, as an African-American, you know, he, he told me he hoped that if he did well, you know, whatever job that he was doing, then others would accept him for who he was as a person, not because of his color. So, for example, if he had a if he had a career assignment that might have maybe been interpreted as, I want to call it racist, but be biased, right? So he, he would never broadcast that. He would never say, hey, you're giving me this because I'm black, you know, and, and, and you know, with that. Instead, he would salute that sort of proverbial flagpole, you know, and he, and he would do that assignment as best he could. So um, I had a good example for you. After he came back from Korea, he did a tour at Fort Benning. He was in the Airborne School, uh, Railroad Department. And then afterwards, I want to say it was 1957, all of his, you know, his Korea buddies, his peers, uh, these white peers, they were getting these assignments. He wanted to go to the 101st and they were all getting the 101st, the 82nd Airborne Division. And he ended up getting assignment to the military mission in Liberia. And so the entire staff there was black. And so you could, you could make a case that, okay, that, that might've been maybe a little bit of a slanted assignment. And so. And Bruce, I should tell our viewers, right? I mean, those are the plum assignments for an airborne instrument is to go to 101st airborne oh, yeah. or the 82nd airborne. And so he didn't get the, you know, the, the plum assignment. He got sent to a place based on, you know, his, his, the color of his skin. Probably based on his color, but my dad went anyway, right? He, he did the job. He, um, you know, I thought about it later. He probably used that opportunity to start honing some of those diplomatic skills you need later on in life. Um, he never complained. He came out with flying colors. You know, he uh, 
he once told me HR that he, he, he never had a bad assignment, which you can imagine people in our, our age group, um, there were a lot of people that complained about their assignments and tried to negotiate with their assignments folks to go get assigned to a different place. And that's not facilitating my career. My dad wasn't like that. He, he just, okay, you know, that's what the army wants me to do. That's where you want me to go. I'm going to go and do it. And it was also really cool because that's in Liberia is where they adopted my sister, Carol. Wow. And then I'm sure different doors open for him. You know, he was a soldier statesman. So I, I imagine that was a formative uh, you know, ass- assignment uh, for, for him in, in Liberia. You know, I, I, I think it's a great lesson for young people, Bruce. I mean, so many young people these days, you know, who I meet at universities and so forth, they think, hey, how do I map out my whole career perfectly? Oh, yeah, I mean, yeah that's, that's a lot of stress. You don't really need to do that, I don't think, right? I mean, if, if, as long as you, you maintain that positive attitude, make the best out of, out of, of whatever opportunity comes your way. But, you know, I, I can't help but think, and as we, I, was, I was thinking about what we should talk about, there are a lot of lessons I think we can draw from your father's life that can help us improve as individuals and as a society, right? And, you know, it's been a, it's been a hell of a year, you know, going back to 2020, right? So no kidding. as we work to, you know, improve and, and strengthen our republic in the wake of these multiple traumas of the past year, you know, a pandemic, a recession, the vitriolic partisanship and assault on our democratic institutions and, and processes that culminated in that attack on the, on the Capitol on January 6th. And then I would say maybe most relevant to this discussion uh, the George Floyd's murder, you know, and the protests and violence that followed associated with anger, you know, anger over unequal treatment under the law and inequality of opportunity. So I, I wonder, Bruce, I know you've been thinking about this too. You know what, what can you tell us about how your father confronted prejudice, bigotry and racism how did he overcome those maladies, not only to overcome them personally, but also to build a better future for generations to come? Uh, okay, so um, so my father's day, you know, I'm sure there were plenty of opportunities to deal with prejudice and bigotry and racism. You know, he, he told me, for example, he came back from Korea, um, still had to deal with the fact that people were judging him and his fellow African-Americans because of their color, just like soldiers had to deal with when they were coming back from World War One, World War Two. You know, you, you went out and fought for your country, your country's mission, your country's goals, whatever those were, you know, and then you come back and then get treated like a second class citizen. It's a tough thing. So uh, he dealt again with that. I think coming back from Vietnam, I was a little kid by then. Um, but, you know, that animosity maybe was motivated a little more than, than just racism. There were some other things obviously going on. But as far as I know, I guess the answer to your question is he he never responded to that animosity in an angry way. He was never. Um, upset. He was never violent, for sure. But he was—he he, he did a really good job, you know, sort of keeping a calm demeanor. He—he he was probably H. He was probably the most patient person I've ever met in my life. Yeah. He, uh, um, he could bide his time in the face of bias. He could uh, eventually prove to others because he was calm and he'd have these heated discussions or whatever the situation was that he was as capable as everybody else. And so he—I wouldn't say he tried to ignore it, but he would try and sidestep focus on racism mm-hmm. issues and. Definitely not let that define the environment that was wrapped around him. Um, and so I have a good example. You know, um, he told me a number of times there was this perception um, as he moved up the, the, the rank structure that he was given jobs and promotions because he was black. Um, and his answer was, you know, it's not really important how I got the job. It's, it's important if I'm doing the job well. And, you know, and if that's the case, you just, you know, no one can say that he was unqualified. So if he was asked... Whenever he was asked, hey, were you given this assignment because you're color? He'd say, I don't you know, worry about the selection process. You know, he trusted the Army to be fair and impartial. 
he, uh, he'd rather focus on actually how you do the job. That's a tough lesson for people. You know, it's, it's, it's a tough thing, I think, for a lot of folks to be able to swallow, you know, the perception that you're getting some kind of favoritism because of your color, right? You know, in, in an environment where you're kind of, you know, things are changing in the community and all that. And, and he, he put that aside in the same way that he would put aside any vitriol or anger or what have you, you know, that are kind of through it. It's, it's a tough thing, you know, but I, he would tell me that, you know, it's, it's, he would tell me it's tough to put aside your pain. You know, it's tough to be able to eat something like somebody yelling in your face and just telling you that you're not a, a, a good person or as good a person as me because of the way you look. But if you're going to achieve that, that higher goal in my dad's case, I want to say it's probably solidarity, you know, unit cohesion, all those kind of things. You have to put that pain aside as best you can. He, um, he could, have, <laughs> he could have the most intelligent conversation with, you know, a white supremacist yelling in his face and he would stay calm and never lose his cool. I, I wish that I could be like that. And, and, and because of that, he was able to kind of, you know, he, he could facilitate getting through, problems, getting through conflicts with, with people in his units, with people he's interacted with back and forth, just because of that personality. So the, the short answer is patient, he's calm, hold back his emotions a little bit where he needed to for the good of the greater goal. You know, Bruce, as you were describing those qualities, I couldn't think of like the, the ancient Greek, philo- the Stoic philosophers, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. you know, I mean, oh. You know, I, you know, and we know, I mean, we know in the military, right? When you're in combat situations, I mean, you need to draw, you need to have a little bit, a bit of a streak of stoicism through you, right? And it sounds like your your father, because you know of the way that he dealt with this, and also you know the way he dealt with with combat and distinguished himself as a combat leader as well. It sounds to me like he had a kind of a, you know, a a mild, that mild form of stoicism that is essential, I think, to to effective service as a, as a soldier and, a, and as a warrior, you know, and, um, you know, and it's, it sounds to me like he just set a great example for all soldiers, right. Regardless of, of color, he led by example. And, yep. and you know, I, you know, uh, just from our previous conversations, you know, it, it reinforced this idea that I have that, you know, I think Bruce, a sense of humor is pretty important, you know, of, uh, because it's an indicator yeah, right. of, of, of your ability to empathize with others. Right. And, and I think that we could all use kind of a, a strong dose of empathy these days at a time when, you know, some argue that you shouldn't even try to put yourself in somebody else's shoes, right? And, and you, it also maybe offends some people if you, if you even try, right? So right, I, right. I thought, you know, could you help our viewers understand and feel what life was like for your father's young African-American in the, in the post-depression, post-World War II era? Can you help us maybe put ourselves in, in his shoes in that early stage, you know, of his career as he was entering military service? Sure. So I think um, it's probably pretty obvious, but, you know, post-depression, post-World War II, it was probably pretty discouraging to be a young African-American unless you had this, you know, this tremendous sense of motivation that you wanted to do well. And it was probably just as discouraging if you did something really well and you were still held back or still judged just because of how you looked and not, you know, based on what you'd done. So what, what choice do you have but to have a sense of humor? You know, and, and they'd be able to, you know, be able to keep going. My dad, my dad had this great sense of humor, you know, and it was despite hardships that I can only imagine. You know, he I don't know that at West Point he was ostracized like they did to some of the earlier uh, black cadets. But I know he had a hard time, you know, and, and uh, there was a lot of bias. And, and when he would communicate to us kids or me when I was telling him I was thinking about going to West Point, he, he never shared, you know, the negative experiences. What was the point? What was the point of focusing on that? Instead, it was, hey, you know, let me tell you about these funny things that happened. And it was positive. And that's that's his sense of humor trying to, I guess you could say it ties into your sense of optimism, right? 
and, and that allows you to kind of face these sort of really uncomfortable things and still still keep your humanity as you as you go around. You know, he he and my mom would, you know, my mom had a good sense of humor too. They would they would shake their heads and laugh sometimes when you had somebody just acting like a jerk or being, you know, spewing out hateful epithets, you know, however you want to describe that. And and by being able to sort of laugh at that, you know, without being disrespectful to the the severity of whatever the situation might be. You know, you, you kind of it kind of puts folks that are on the other side in a less scary, less intimidating perspective, and then you can deal better with them. And so I think that maybe he used his uh, he and my mom used their sense of humor in that respect. You know, that I can't I can't think of one single family member, you know, or fr- family friend, and they're all black, right? So I, I literally was the only sort of light skinned person in my entire family growing up, um, and then nobody cared, you know, and, and and they were all black, and they never. Um, they weren't bitter, these folks. They, they weren't bitter about their experiences. They just wanted to move on and get past them and get to where everybody would get along. So, I, you know, I would hear these stories about, well, you know, we, we, we're going down to the South. We have to pack up a bunch of food and drinks and so forth because we don't want to stop it again. It was off, yeah. And, and you know, oh, we're all going to get pulled over by cops just because of the way we look. And that obviously is going on to get today. And, and these are people, these friends you're talking about, these are people who have served overseas oh, yeah. in oh, combat yeah. defending our freedom, right? Oh, and then yeah. come back, then come back to a Jim Crow South where they're reporting to Fort Benning, Georgia, and they have to plan their route around hotels they can stay in or yeah. restaurants they can eat in. I mean, I, it's hard. I mean, that wasn't that long ago, Bruce, you know, but it's, uh, it's, it's hard to, hard I think to imagine. It's still going on. I think it's still going on today. I think there are still people who are uncomfortable driving through certain places because they're afraid of they're going to get abused or, or, or harassed because of how they look. Yeah. You know? And I mean, uh, you know, to go back to the original question, I, don't get me wrong, I, there was some opportunity for, for blacks, you know, obviously coming, coming out of World War II and, you know, and, and uh, this, you know, post desegregation kind of thing, you know, that, you know, just um, the, the, the it, it wasn't a completely negative environment, you know, it wasn't a completely positive environment, it wasn't completely negative. So, you know, Truman, uh, desegregate the military. He signed that, uh, I've forgotten the number of the order, but 18 something uh, yeah. in uh, 1948. And uh, my dad was really proud in particular how the army handled that desegregation afterwards. And so it was because the army and tying back to your question was, was that the army was providing these opportunities for young African-Americans that they otherwise, you know, wouldn't have had. And uh, I mean, my dad got to go to West Point, you know, and there was, he had 600 people 1947 in his class, there were only five blacks. And you could look at that as, wow, there are only five blacks. Well, it's five more than zero. And so at least the opportunity was there and things were starting to change. So I think that it was probably optimistic uh, for folks, but you had to have that positive spirit and that sense of humor that you, you mentioned. Yeah. And, and, you know, and you can see progress, right? But I think the point that you're making is, hey, the progress wasn't linear. It, there were setbacks, there were difficulties. And, and still, even today, right? I mean, we, we should have to acknowledge today, there's still work to be done, right? There's work oh. to be done in our republic to nurture it and uh, yep. to, 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 uh, to improve our ability to identify with, with one another, regardless of skin color, to, to recognize our, you know, our, our, our common identity as, as Americans and not to judge people by their skin color. You know, desegregation, which you mentioned, you know, which is, was occurring in the army soon after your, your, uh, your father graduated or as he graduated in, in the class of 51. Right. And, right, right. and, um, and it was, I think it had to have been Bruce, the most pivotal moment in our army as an institution since the founding in 1775, or maybe, you know, uh, may, maybe the, the, uh, 
you know, the defection of of uh, of Southern officers uh, during during the rebellion and the Civil War. You know, that was a traumatic experience. But but in terms of you know a pivotal moment, a positive moment for for our army. I think it had to be desegregation. So we know that it happened, right? Okay, it happened. And you mentioned that your father felt good about the way it happened, the way that the Army dealt with it. But any, any other details you might share with us about your father's experiences? Because he, you know, he led all Black units, right? And then, and then he, he led integrated units. And so that must have been, you know, he must have personally witnessed, I mean, the most significant aspect, really, of desegregation. Right. Probably had a really, really good perspective on that, you know? So so for context, that order I was mentioning before we talked about true, but it was called uh, Executive Order 9981. He signed that in 1948. Um, that was, you know, uh, directing equal force, equal treatment um, of people in the armed forces, right? So it's obviously an implementation that, you know, couldn't happen overnight. And, you know, the military did what they were told, you know, started, started the process. So I'm, you're right. In Korea, my dad, he was in the 7th Infantry Division. Uh, he got there in 52. And, uh, uh, you know, he was in, it was an all-Black unit with white leadership. Um, and for the most part, I, I think it was probably during the course of desegregation, things were starting to change, but I don't know the whole ins and outs of how the unit was made up, but that was the basic gist of it. And so, um, you know, as I told you before, there was this perception that my dad told me about when you still had segregation going on and, and afterwards, you know, that, that black soldiers were just not as capable as white soldiers. And I mean, some people truly believe that, you know, from a physical standpoint, from a mental standpoint, it's kind of hard to believe that people felt that way, but you know, that's, that's, I think that's the reality of it. Um, and so there were actually these policies in place that prevented black soldiers from, you know, achieving too much rank. So I think as an officer, you couldn't really get promoted above captain if you were, you know, if you're black or African-American, if you're an officer. And so my dad told me that when desegregation happened and, you know, and uh, you're right in the middle of it, right there at the end of the Korean conflict, uh, he said that the, the African-American soldiers, the black soldiers were actually really excited about desegregation, but not maybe for what you'd think. He, it was that they, they started out at a position of disadvantage, you know, a perception of, of that. You know, you're, you're, you're black, you know, you're not as good as the whites. And so from their standpoint, he said that soldiers were really, really excited about being able to prove to their white counterparts, hey, I'm just as good as you, not I'm better than you. Um, and and I'm, I'm, I'm sure that's not always the case, but, you know, my dad's feel for it, and he told me was, we're as good as you, give us the chance to be able to prove that to you, and then maybe we'll all be accepted and we can all sort of, you know, get along as a cohesive unit. There was this, um, uh, there was this unit in the Korean conflict, it was called the 24th Infantry Regiment, and it was uh, an all-Black unit, white leadership, all that, and they had, uh, they were in some heavy combat, and there were some you know, some, some, some defeats as opposed to victories. There were some setbacks during some of the combat. And I don't know all the details, but um, in the course of writing the history books, in the course of the after-act reviews and so forth, some of the white leadership kind of disparaged some of the black soldiers. So, you know, they're cowards. They're not as good as soldiers of the whites. And that's why we lost either this battle or this conflict or this piece here. Um, and so that stuck for, what, 50 years? And so after my dad retired, um, and it was one of the cool things, I think, that um, the folks could look at my dad and think that, okay, you're African-American and this is an African-American issue, but you can be objective. We want you to do, so the Secretary of the Army was John Marsh at the time. He said, you know, we want you to do this study and come back and tell us whether or not these folks really got treated unfairly. And so the long story short is he did this great research. He went through all the history books and all these files and he did a bunch of interviews and all that and came back with an objective conclusion that was, hey, you know what? It's the leadership's issue that caused these problems, not the soldiers. And he really sort of took the color out of it. 
And, and, I, I, and I, I think today, uh, I feel pretty comfortable that today the 24th reputation has been you know, restored to some extent because of that, right? Absolutely. So, and you know, Bruce, I'll tell you, I, I, I'm sure this, this, this is, was your experience in our, in our Army as, a, as an infantry officer as well. I mean, I, you know, whenever you see a unit, the difference between a unit that's mediocre and, and a unit that is committed to excellence and a high-performing unit, hey, the difference is the leadership. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and anybody, anybody who blames their soldiers for unit experience, <laughs> I mean, yeah. God, how is that possible? Those soldiers yeah. are the same. The other thing, Bruce, you know, that struck, struck me several times across my career is, you know, people come to the Army, you know, the, with all different sorts of biases based on their backgrounds, you know, and, and that's, that's good. I mean, that's okay. But what I've seen is uh, under the duress of challenging training and especially in combat, right, when, when you're in a fight, you're not checking the skin color of the person. Yeah. Right? I mean, yeah. you, are, you are like, hey, what do you, what do you bring in? Right. What do you bring into the fight? Right. And, and you rely on each other and you see those biases and prejudices just break down. You know, I I wish that, you know, that was translatable more broadly, maybe across our society. But, you know, um, it, what, so so how did it work after that? So, your dad, you know, after desegregation, sure. uh, and what were some of your dad's experiences when he commanded non-minority troops uh, you know, after segregation ended? Right. Of course, he was the first. You know, he was the first black commander of the, of the All-American Division, the 82nd Airborne Division, for example. What, what, was, what do you remember about what he told you about those experiences? Um, sure. So, so soldiers of all, all backgrounds loved him. That, that was kind of the key thing that I took away. So um, I saw this firsthand as a kid while I was – he was the brigade commander of 2nd Brigade in 82nd Airborne in 72. Uh, so I was, you know, fifth grade. And then again, uh, as the commanding general of the 82nd there when we were in high school, 76, 78. Um, if, if anybody cared about his color, they kept it to themselves. He set that command climate to where you really didn't, it didn't matter what your color was. What was important was there was a standard and you were held to it regardless of what you look like and, and you better get it done. And that's, you know, that environment is really prevalent uh, in these uh, sort of these elite units. The 82nd is one of those that's, you know. I would, add, I would add the cavalry units, of course, Bruce. Uh, Bruce right, right, yeah. And the Mech Infantry units, and, and, the, and the Mech Infantry units, like Second Armored Division, where I was. He gave me so much crap about that age, because you know my grades weren't good enough to uh, my grades weren't good enough to get into the eighty second when I graduated, and I, I caught so much grief from my dad for that. It wasn't even funny, but yeah. So he, he um, so if they, if anybody cared about color, they kept it to themselves, you know. And so um, you can't throw the color card out on a leader if that leader is as capable as any soldier in the unit. And that's how my dad was. He could outrun most of them. He could outthink them all. He was a great paratrooper, best you'd ever seen. And he never made race an issue, right? So, so here you are as an African-American post-desegregation. And his goal was just treat everybody fairly. Let's not go back the other direction. You know, let's, let's just, we're all equal. We're all part of the same team. It doesn't really matter, you know, what you look like. He never, he never singled out black soldiers for special recognition because they're black. He just singled out soldiers because they did something outstanding, right? Regardless of color, you know. He had this, I think I said it before, he had this wonderful colorblindness that, you know, I, I wish more people could, could have that. I don't know how you get that. I don't know how you teach that to somebody, but yeah. <laughs> you so, know, so uh, sad, sadly, Bruce, there's even a debate today whether colorblindness is a virtue, right? It's hard for me to imagine how it can't be. But I think what people are sensitive to is that if you say colorblind, it means that you're not acknowledging yeah. The hurdles and the obstacles that minorities, uh, Black Americans in particular, have to overcome right. uh, to you know to have equality of opportunity. So maybe, maybe. that's not what that's not what we're doing when we're saying colorblind. What we're saying well, is, you know, recognize 
that a person's skin pigmentation doesn't define them, right? There's something deeper about a person than that, right? And you, and you mentioned that, their character and their competence and their you, compassion, you right? Sorry, interrupt you. You think that'd be such an easy message to convey to people, but it's very difficult, I think, for a lot of people to do that. Maybe we say color agnostic, you know, um, yeah. instead of color. I don't know. But I'll tell you a funny story. He, get tripped, they get tripped up on words, you know. I mean, let's 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 try to spend some time understanding each other's hearts in our society, right? I mean, you know, little kids do it, right? And so I'll, I'll yeah. tell you later. But little little kids do that kind of stuff. And when you're a kid, you know. You know, I mean, you ever go to the daycare when you have little kids? I have several right now. Uh, <laughs> then, uh, you know, I mean, they don't care what color the other kid is. They just want to play and, you know, and just do their thing. And I don't know how you lose that as you grow up. And, yeah. and, uh, and, and so that's, you know, I was going to tell you a funny story. You know, when, uh, um, when my dad took command of uh, United States Army Japan, Ninth Corps, it was maybe 1980. It was in 1980. And when he got there, he told me, he says, you know, the the stab, the headquarters, people were kind of doing their own thing. There wasn't really a lot of this sort of unit cohesion and all that. And this major came into the office, um, white guy, but whatever. And, and, and he said, Hey, uh, Joe Robinson, I hear you're a, a handball player. I'm a big racquetball player. You know, what do you say we play a game? And my dad said, listen, you're kind of overweight, you know, and, and, uh, <laughs> and I mean, that was indicative of sort of the, 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 the unit, right? Because you had some guys that got away with being overweight, you know, you can't do that in the military. So my dad said, listen, go lose 20 pounds and I'll, I'll play you. And so the guy did it, motivated, anyway, lost 20 pounds, came back however many you know, weeks later. And, uh, and my dad said, okay, well, let's go play racket. And my dad beat the crap out of this guy. He <laughs> smoked him on the thing, you know. But afterwards, and then afterwards, he says, hey, lose 20 pounds, I'll play again. <laughs> and, uh, and, the, and the point I'll tell you about that story was that, that, you know, the major would have followed him to the ends of the earth after that. And it didn't matter what color he was. You know, he, he, my dad challenged him. He kept his word. He showed him really who the boss was, you know. And, and, and that got around and, and as that story got around, you could see sort of the bridge that, you know, that, that he bridged, I'm not saying that correctly, but you could sort of see the connection that yeah. he made. And right. even in the eighties, you still had to do that. And, and so people started to come together. He wasn't a black general. He was this general that happened to be black and everybody was cool with that. And genuinely cared about the people in his charge yeah. and, you know, I, Bruce, I think all of us have a role, right? All of us have a role in a small way, wherever we are in life, to ensure equal of opportunity for everybody that's in our circle, right? In, in the area that we can influence. Right. You know, any other stories about how your dad advocated for equality of opportunity in oh. the Army? I mean, you've mentioned some things already. He did it by example, right? He, he did yeah. it by, by, by setting the example of, of, of equal treatment, you know, as when he was in command. Well, any other, any other um, stories or, or approaches come to mind? Sure. So you can see him extrapolating kind of his, his own experiences and then overlaying those on, you know, new uh, um, opportunities for equal opportunity. Okay. I'm probably not saying that right. So when he was commanding the 82nd Airborne Division, you know, the order came down, hey, um, women are going to get integrated into combat units. We're going to start. And so you can draw some parallels. You can draw parallels between the, the female community and the African-American community of, you know, desegregation days. Right. And so uh, he was empathetic to that group of women because he could see that they'd suffered discrimination in probably the same way that, you know, that African-Americans had suffered discrimination in the past. There were a lot of parallels there. And so when he was the commanding general, he, made, he told me he made absolutely sure that when those women arrived, that they were, they were not going to be mistreated. They were going to be treated as soldiers. And the promise he made to the unit was, look, we're not just going to bring in anybody. We're going to bring in women who can, who are soldiers, who can pass or meet the same standards that everybody else has to meet. 
regardless of gender in this particular case, inside the 82nd Airborne Division. And he told me um, that, that when they finally did get integrated, that there was no mistreatment, that, you know, these women came in, they, they knew they had to be to a high standard. They met the high standard, airborne schooling, all that kind of stuff. And, and that everybody got along just fine. You know, I'm sure there were cases where that wasn't, well, it wasn't always, I'm sure it wasn't perfect, you know, as a, as a process, but he nailed it. Yeah. You know, and I asked him one time, I, I'm sorry to interrupt. I asked him one time, I said, we used to call them affirmative action programs back in the day, you know, and I, and there was a debate. In fact, when we were at West Point, there was a debate about all of us cadets talking about, it. there was a debate about whether or not those programs are any good because you have affirmative action programs that, you know, guarantee opportunities in maybe what I call an imperfect or maybe slightly biased society, you know, that these folks otherwise wouldn't have. And my dad said, those, they're great. You know, it, it, they're great in that respect because, and they do provide these opportunities, but you have to really be careful. And this goes back to, you know, commanding troops after the, the desegregation was, you don't want to have a, a, a swing back in the other direction. You don't want to have a pendulum effect. Um, if you don't manage these programs, then you're going to have, you know, other people, white people, you know, who are going to feel like they're missing out on some opportunities because of the af affirmative action, you know, program on the other side. And so that'd be another problem you have to fix. And that doesn't make any sense either. So he tell you that the programs are good, but only if you manage them well and you have to be sensitive to both sides, right? right. And you know, I, I, am, I am kind of proud of what our Army's done over time, the long record, right? Imperfect, still work to be done. But you know, gosh, at West Point these days, it's well, it's well over 12% of the, of the cadets are, 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 uh, are African-American. Uh, and what, the way I think about it is, you know, if you don't access the black community, you know, blacks in, in, in uh, the United States, yeah. you're not availing yourself of a tremendous source of talent. You know, and, and, and capability. Yeah. So, so you want the pool that you draw on from our citizens to be as large as, as possible, right? And, right. you know, I think, I think a lot of that has to do, too, with, like, coming to grips with our history, Bruce, you know. Um, as you know, I mean, you know, Orwell uh, wrote in 1984, you know, one of, the, one of the phrases is, he who controls the, 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 uh, the past controls the present, right? And, and, you know, one of the ways that, that the North accommodated with the South after the Civil War a war which we should acknowledge, hey, was fought against slavery, and 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 we emancipated four million uh, of our fellow Americans in the most destructive war in our history. But we it was disappointing afterwards, right? The the way that the North and South accommodated after the Civil War, you know, was it was to come to kind of a white accommodation at the expense of blacks, right? And and what was a, a war to preserve slavery was then taught in history books, right? As being about like you know, innocuous term states' rights, states right? Rights. And then, and then, uh, and then, of course, after the turn of the 20th century, and especially after World War II, uh, you know, World War One, really, I guess it was. Many of the bases in the South were named for Confederate leaders, right? To solidify the deal, right? Reconciliation, kind of at the expense of and in the face of kind of Black Americans, right? So. I think as we consider, and this is this is a you know a controversial topic, obviously, right? But I think as we consider whether or not to rename bases, we have to consider two things, okay? Hey, when they were named and for what purpose, right? And and so uh, for our, our viewers, how do you think your father would weigh in on this this base renaming uh, you know, debate that's going on? Yeah, I, I think he would say. So I think I mentioned this before. He would say, if there's a perception of a problem, then we have a problem. So. American leadership needs to address this particular problem. There's, there's a perception that Confederate statues or the names of certain bases named after Confederate generals um, is offensive, 
right? It's offensive maybe to black Americans. It's maybe offensive to other categories of people too. And so you have that problem. You need to, you need to take some kind of action. You can't just let it fester. So I, I hope that, I imagine my dad would say this too. I hope that leaders would take an approach similar to how my dad approaches or approach those kind of issues during his career. And that's, you know, case by case basis. Hey, you know, where is each side coming from in, in terms of the, you know, the folks that are concerned or having these discussions about the statues and the, and the military base and all that, you know, and then try to find some common ground. I mean, why do we, why do we wreck statues to uh, uh, military people in the first place? You know, it's, t- I think that it's typically for exemplary conduct on a battlefield, right? It's not supposed to be a gift, you know? Right. And so if a Confederate general was exemplary, uh, you know, is it so bad to honor him? You know, yeah, I mean, <laughs> there's some pretty poor performers that those bases. <laughs> right. Yeah, I think Petraeus said that, you know, um, yeah, I mean, but, but they weren't all bad, you know, and, and it's a tough one in this case because this is a civil, these are all Americans that we're talking about. Right. And so, you know, you, you have winners and losers, but ultimately they're all Americans. I, I don't know. The, 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 the issue I have, Bruce, though, is, is that they violated their oath. Right. I mean, these, oh, yeah. these bases yeah. are named after. People who, you know, if you want to take the extreme view, you could say they were traitors for slavery, right? That's so, right. Yeah. You know, but but when you look at a historical context, you see why these they, these bases were named after them. Mm-hmm. You know, but but isn't it maybe it's time to get over that now? Maybe we can get over that. And and uh, so I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. So go, no, that's okay. So I, you know, I, I'm I'm with you. I'm with you. I think that um, I think both sides. Uh, probably can make some pretty valid points, you know, as, as you, as you have these debates about, you know, whether or not to pull a statue or to change a name for a base and all that. So, and I'll tell you what I was thinking about this, you know, I, um, right now there's this effort going on, you know, under the base rename. My dad is a candidate um, for Fort Bragg to be named after him, you know, and, and so I, I, I think to myself, great, what an incredible honor that would be, right. You know, uh, to, to, you know, if my mom was alive. Oh boy, that just, you wouldn't be able to stop talking about it. It'd be, this tribute to my dad's hard work, you know, his perseverance, his dedication to the country and so forth. And, and it would be a nod, you know, for example, to the African-American community. Right. But, but then I thought, you know, but if that's the only justification, um, would we really be all that much different than how the base was originally named? Maybe to do it right, we'd also need to rename that post because it's the home of the airborne, you know, right. and my dad was the consummate airborne soldier. And so he served three times the division and he happened to be African-American and got through all this disparity. Yeah, that's a justification I think would would, would stick, right? I, I you know I, I think you're absolutely right about that. I think that's the perfect way to think about it. You know, as you know, I had the great privilege of commanding Fort Benning, Georgia. I'll tell you, Bruce, man. After I graduated from Ranger School, I thought, man, I hope I never see that place again in my life. But I wound up uh, going back as the first cavalry commander of the post. Now, some people have predicted, hey, the world was going to end when that happened, but it yeah, didn't. Yeah. And um, you know, when I, when I, when you have this great privilege. You live in this awesome house there called Riverside. And, 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 and traditionally in the house at the head of the dining room table, there's a huge, you know, there's a huge portrait of, of, uh, of Colonel Benning, you know, for right. whom the, 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 the post is named after. Right. So, you know, I'm, I'm from the North, you know, I'm from Philadelphia. Right. So, so I, am, I, I think I'm a historian. So I couldn't, you know, in Georgia, there's no way you can hang it up a portrait of Sherman. You know what I mean? So I, I selected <laughs> my, my cavalry, one of my cavalry heroes, Phil, Phil Sheridan, mm-hmm. as one of the heroes. But I hung him near Colonel Benning. So when I brought people for tours of the house, I could talk about our history, the history of the Civil War, but also the history of the failure of Reconstruction and, and the rise of Jim Crow and the Ku Klux Klan and and, and separate but equal. And, and how our army, of course, in many ways reflected 
th those dynamics in, in our history and, 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 and in our society. But also what I did is I, I, I hung in, in, our, in Riverside, uh, which, you know, which, which generated great conversations, portraits of two Black Medal of Honor recipients, uh, Corporal Freddie Stowers, uh, an infantryman in, in World War I, and Staff Sergeant Reuben Rivers, a tank commander in World War II. I'd, I'd recommend our viewers read their stories of what they did, the, the tremendous gallantry and heroism in, in battle. So at Fort Benning, infantry and, and armor and cavalry came together. So it was a great way to talk about that, right? right the right. common legacy of valor. It was also a great way to talk about sergeants leading soldiers, right? That's the strength of our army, right? That's what, where combat power really, really comes from. But then it was also an opportunity to talk about, oh, okay, hey, you may have noticed both these sergeants, both these non-commissioned officers I'm talking about are black as well. And then I could tell the, the history, really, of the integration of our army and, and the work in progress, right, to make, to make our army a place of, of complete equality of opportunity and where you judge, right, that man or woman next to you based on only on what they bring to the fight, what they bring to the team, what they bring to the mission. So, you know, I, I think that, that, of course, as, as, uh, as officers, we internalized you know this this i this you know this idea of equality of opportunity and so you know i i just wondered as you as you kind of see over this past year in particular right this destructive what i i mean this is the way i view it bruce okay. a destructive interaction right between what some call identity politics and then on the other extreme bigotry and racism and as these interact they create centripetal forces that are just like pulling us apart from each other right i mean you know i i you know the main theme of the series these interviews is strategic empathy and I just, I just wonder, what, what are your thoughts on this? You know, can our history maybe, right? The history of the army, the history of your father, his role, can, can that help us arrest these centripetal forces and maybe bring us back together, you know, not just, to, you know, in, in our military, but beyond our military, in our society? I, I don't think we have a choice, HR. I, I think that we have to arrest those forces. And I think that, um, I think my dad certainly would have been part of that. You know, I, he always told me, like I said before, if there's a perception of a problem, well, then there's a problem. We have some perceptions of some major problems going on um, in the United States right now. And this year, this past year, it's just how else do you describe it? It's been horrendous, but it's bringing to light the way people feel, you know, and it, it's just coming into the forefront. And I mean, you can have debates about whether or not that's right and whether it's being portrayed accurately in the media and so forth. But the point is that there's a problem. If American leadership doesn't acknowledge that people feel wronged, how do you move forward, right? So I'm pretty sure my dad would say that um, the movements, if you want to call them that, are valid. You know, that that people have, if people feel a certain way, feel like they're being wronged, feel like police are discriminating against them, for example, well, then then that's a valid feel. You got to validate their, their beliefs, their feelings, and then start to, you know, work on common ground to solve those things, you know, put in programs into play, whatever it is, you know, that needs to be done. But the you got to find a way to get that perception to be altered such that people feel like they're being treated fairly. You know, um, I think he would also, you know, you have other groups that come back and say, listen, this one group feels like they're being wrong right now. Let, just as an example, this one group of African-Americans feel like there is a disparate amount of police brutality, you know, against their community. And my dad would say, hey, that is a valid Point. That's a valid concern. Let's take a look at that. Other groups will come back and say, wait a second, you know, there's police brutality all over the United States being thrown at other, you know, groups. White people get beat up by the police sometimes, you know, Hispanics, you know, Asians, whatever. My dad would say, you're right. You know, he would say, you're right. There shouldn't be any police brutality at all. 
you know, but for now we have this immediate problem, this immediate perception that is super painful for people. Let's get to figuring that out and addressing that. I think that's where he would come from. Well, you know, Bruce, you, I mean, you're, you're talking about is being sensitive to how people feel to acknowledge it, right? This is, you know, as I mentioned, this is the, the-, the theme in this, in this series of interviews, right. mainly right. on, you know, issues of foreign policies is strategic empathy. But, you know, to me, your father seems to have had the quality of, of empathizing, the ability to empathize with, the, with others, to understand, you know, the challenges that we're facing from the perspective of, of others. So, you know, could you share with us uh, General Roscoe Robinson's accomplishments as a soldier statesman, you know, really not only, you know, understanding his soldiers, right, getting through this period of desegregation, but, but what he did as, as a soldier statesman who worked with allies and partners sure. abroad in, you know, in the midst of the Cold War. Sure. So there's all sorts of biases, you know, um, that you can fall victim to depending on any, at any point in your career or wherever you are in, in society, you know, and as you're well aware, you know, dealing with people from other countries and regions, you know, that presents an opportunity for prejudice and bias, I think, uh, to be an influence if you, if you allow that to happen. And so not, not my dad. So he was, so there's two cases I could talk about. One, uh, he was the commander of the United States Army, Japan, Ninth Corps. Um, he was, he and my mom very well liked in Japan. They had a field day out there. Um, and, and I think the reason was because he took the Japanese people at face value. He, uh, he respected their culture. Um, and, you know, and maybe this goes back to his own experiences, you know, let's not prejudge. And he didn't come across as a facetious American. Hey, we're an army of occupation. You know, we tell you, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I'd hear that a lot of times from, you know, say the Brits over in Germany back in the day. You know, it's not right. And he would never do that. He, he, he would treat his counterparts in the same way that he treated everybody, right? He would respect rank and position. He would consider at the same time that everybody, no matter what the rank and position was, as an equal, you know, from a human standpoint, we all put our pants on one leg at a time, you know? And so same when he was at the U, he was his final assignment, his four-star assignment, he was the U.S. representative to the NATO military committee there in Belgium. And so, he, you know, the, the other country reps loved him. You know, there was this committee of however many countries worth of, you know, three and four star generals that represent the military from all different NATO members. And uh, he was very disarming, you know, and you're a de facto leader in that position of that committee because of the fact that we're the United States. Um, and, and he'd got all kinds of stuff done with the committee while he was there. So I was going to say, go back to Japan, for example, you know, they Japanese have been going through this transition um, and some of it's an emotional transition since the end of World War II, you had this perception way back then of, of, of Wow, you know, the Japanese empire, you know, and, and there's a bit of humility involved. There's a lot of that stuff kind of going on that still reflects in Japanese politics, probably even today. So the Japanese have their own military. They have the National Defense Force. And, you know, at, at the end of World War II, it was you're not going to have your own military. But eventually it was, well, you can have your own defense force. And it hits the title. Defense force, yeah. Right. And so when my dad took over the United States Army of Japan, he, he recognized pretty early on, and I read this in his biography, that, you know, Japan was still kind of struggling with, that that role and that and that force and, and can that force be a little bit more independent so you know he, he was very diplomatic he, he he got together with his Japanese counterparts he said let's start doing some more exercises together as a, uh, a you know cooperative efforts this this combined military team Japan United States it was great well but that wasn't really the agenda the real agenda was hey indirectly let's get the Japanese self-defense force up and running let's teach each other stuff he went back to Washington DC made a lot of progress in getting people to commit, hey, if you want us 
to be able to improve this relationship, you got to start letting me send me bring some forces over from the states to be able to actually participate in exercises. You know, let me get this unit from here and this unit from there. Let me actually bring them in. And the higher higher ups bought off on it. And so, you know, I attribute that to his diplomatic skills. The Japanese love that. And when it was all over and done with, I feel like the National Defense Force was a, you know, a, a, um, a better organization than it was before. When he was at NATO, um, this would have been. 82 to 84, 85, right? So we were juniors and seniors. Um, you know, I mean, hide the Cold War, right? And so he was a strong advocate for continuing the modernization of the conventional militaries of all these different countries. So if you remember, I mean, it's common knowledge, but, you know, nukes, there, dude, there were nuclear power and nuclear weapons galore. I mean, you had enough nuclear weapons between the Soviet Union and the United States to decimate the planet six or seven times over. And so... You know, there, there was a tendency, according to my dad's biography, some of his notes he wrote was he felt like there was a tendency for uh, countries to say, you know, we have a nuclear deterrent and we can maybe do not so we don't have to modernize our conventional military, keep them quite so up to speed because we have the nukes. The nukes are going to stop, you know, uh, you know, mutual assert destruction, all that kind of stuff. And so my dad came back and said, you know, I don't think the Soviet Union and the United States really want to have a nuclear war. I, I think that these folks, if there is going to be a fight, it's going to be conventional. And here we are out there. Here's his son, you know, out there on the front lines and all that. So, uh, so he, he made a lot of effort and inroads with all those different NATO military reps to go back to their own countries and convince them to, to uh, uh, keep their conventional forces up to speed. And that was maybe even a better deterrent for having a conflict than the nuclear weapons, because people were, really didn't think that anybody was ever going to pull those triggers, right? I think that yeah. Well, uh, I was going to say you could see his legacy there. You know, in, in the collapse of the uh, you know of the Soviet Union, like the, the first the tearing down down of the Berlin Wall, the lifting oh, yeah. of the curtain in in 1989, and now the strength of the Japanese uh, self defense force, which is really important. Did oh, yeah. with an increasingly aggressive uh, People's Liberation Army of China uh, and the threat from North Korea. So, um, yeah. other very important legacies. Yeah. Hey, Bruce, you know, finally, you know, I, I wanted to ask you just what, what can you tell us about the recollections of, of your family and and uh, and and you know, really uh, his, you know, how your dad's approach to family reflected his approach to offer officership um, and and his service to the, you know, to his nation and his, his, his fellow soldiers. Well, I, I appreciate that question. I really love to talk about, it. <laughs> you know, uh, um, we have a very, we had a very unique family coming up, right? And so my mom and dad, you know, they love family. Um, but if you look, like I mentioned before, you know, we, um, mom and dad couldn't have kids for whatever reasons. And so they adopted my sister, Carol. She's a 35-year veteran of government service now, works in the Pentagon and the Army uh, Congressional Liaison Office. Um, and then me, they just want to have kids. So when they were in Liberia, you know, out of the blue, somebody showed up one day, uh, a lady showed up with a kid and said, hey, I, I can't take care of this child. And my parents said, Bigger. And, and, and then uh, later on, they were at Command General Staff College, Fort Leavenworth, 63, um, and they were trying to adopt another kid. And they didn't, they put out that, hey, we don't really care. We just want a kid. We just want a boy to go with this girl. We're going to have two kids. And, uh, and so I think it's Jackson County uh, in Missouri uh, said, hey, we got a kid for you, but he's white. And my parents said, we, we don't care. We'll take him. And, and, and that, I mean, that's a huge message. So in the sixties, imagine the early sixties. You got to remember this is, this yeah. is civil rights movement. Just, yeah. now kicking in, yeah. just now kicking in. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So you have, it, it probably wasn't all that, all that uncommon for maybe a white couple to adopt an African-American kid. 
But having an African-American couple adopt a white kid was, was it just, we didn't happen very often. And I can even remember being a kid, you know, getting some weird looks and heck, you know, and when we'd be out in public someplace, but you know, but they, my folks just drove on with the mission and handled it. And they never communicated to any of us that, you know, anything was, Hey, all people are good. And if someone's acting bad, it's that person. It's not because of who he, you know, what, what ethic he represents. It's because that particular person's acting inappropriately. So, you know, so here we are. So, uh, um, he, uh, my folks were, they were really good educators. They never made us feel stupid as kids because we couldn't figure out our homework. He, one of my dad's really great skills was, you know, if you couldn't get the math message to me on some problem, he would figure out a different way to say it. Well, that's a communication skill. It's huge. And that's, you know, that's again, color agnostic, but you know, it's, it's, it, you put superimpose that onto his leadership style. It's probably why his troops loved him so much. And they really, really did. You know, it's, that's, you know, uh, uh, it, it works because if you accept your, your troops or your kids or whoever, you know, as, as being humans and they have their shortcomings and they all learn in different ways, but you don't belittle them, well, then you're, they're endeared to you. And so some higher up, up the ranks, you know, says, wow, look at this guy. He's got these people who love him. They, they'll follow him to the ends of the earth. That's a leader. I don't care what color he is. I want that guy moving up. And I think that maybe was part of the reason why my dad was able to move up as he was, you know, we, uh, we come from a diverse community, right? We, you know, uh, uh, in the military, you know, the military is so, you know, the military, you're not really isolated. Maybe you're on your overseas, but, but you're on a military base, you know, it is a cross section of American society ethnically. And so you have folks of all colors, and, and what a wonderful world to grow up in. I, I don't know that I, I don't even think I was, I mean, I was aware academically of, of racism. You'd see it on TV, you know, but from a personal standpoint, it, it never was an issue until I probably went to high school. I finally went to a public school off base, you know, and suddenly, holy cow, somebody's mad at me or upset because I look a certain way or somebody else is getting picked on because they look a certain way. It was foreign. It was weird. I was so naive. In a lot of ways. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. It was great because it, for all our formative years, us kids got to grow up in that environment where, you know, color didn't matter. It was, it was who you were. It was, it was, you didn't pick your friends because of how they looked. You picked your friends because of how they acted, you know, and that, whoa, that, what a great message that would be to pass on to the United States today. I, uh, I was going to tell you one thing too, the last, last story I'll tell you, the, um, since you asked, uh, it's a great indicator of my dad, right? So he takes over uh, United States Army Japan, like I told you, in that major in Iraq and all that. Well, he uh, he felt like uh, they needed a little more unit cohesion. And obviously, United States Army Japan is not the 82nd Airborne Division, you know? So you don't, you know, it's a sort of a staff kind of thing in the headquarters. Well, so what he do, he set up this thing, he called the commander's run, and it was great. He would get the whole staff out at like five o'clock in the morning. They hated it initially. And... Uh, <laughs> And, you know, and, and he'd make them all, and he had PAO, public affairs out there taking pictures and making videos and all this. And he'd get the entire, no matter where you worked, everybody had to come to the commander's run. And the only rule was you couldn't pass my dad, right? So he would take off on this run and, and it was two miles and he'd run all over camp. So I'm just yelling and screaming and having a good time, but nobody could pass my dad. And, and what ended up happening was, you know, you and I understand this, that builds cohesion more than you can possibly imagine. Here's the general and nobody can run past him. And they all know his background. He's got his, he's got his master parachute, his sweatshirt on, you know, or he's got his all Americans always, you know, and they loved it. They all ran together. They, they built this togetherness. They, they made morale go through the roof. 
And, 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 and that, if that was his legacy, I think that probably would be the thing that he'd be most proud of, right? Was that he brought people together regardless of their color base, all those experiences we talked about, all those negative, all the positive, put it all together and just got everybody to get along and work together towards a higher goal. It was wonderful. It was wonderful. It was wonderful being his kid. Hey, Bruce, I can't thank you enough. I think you've helped our viewers understand that our military, our army is a living historical community, right? In which officers, sergeants, and soldiers strive to preserve and build you know, on, on a legacy of excellence and courage and honor and selflessness that, that, we, you know, that we inherit from those who have gone before us. Your father, General Roscoe Robinson, and you, Lieutenant Colonel Bruce Robinson, contributed to that legacy with your service and your example. Hey, Bruce, on, on behalf of the Hoover Institution, thank you for helping us learn more about a battleground here at home uh, that is vital to strengthening our republic and, and building a future of peace and prosperity for generations to come. It's been great to see you. Thank you so much. I can't thank you enough, HR. Thank you for having me on. It's been wonderful. Battlegrounds is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work, to hear more of our podcasts, or view our video content, please visit hoover.org.